when you look at kind of adults, not just kids, that, for instance, the gap in unhappiness between folks who are single, who are less happy in America than folks who are married, has uh, about doubled from 2000 to 2021. So what I'm getting at here, Kevin, simply is this idea, again, sort of having the benefit of a spouse and a family seems to be more important in 2022 than it was even in, you know, 1990 or 1975. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. We've been at this a year. Thanks for making it possible. If you haven't given us a rating, please do so. Remember, the one bit of socialism we like is if we just accept five-star ratings. All kidding aside, mostly. This week's guest is a longtime friendly acquaintance. Dare I call him a friend? He's a great guy, one of the really important scholars in the conservative movement, although his work is has to deal with much more than just conservatism. And it is a great pleasure to welcome the director of the National Marriage Project, professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, Dr. Brad Wilcox. Good to be here, Kevin. Brad, thanks for taking time. I mean, here, here we're filming this at the, the very end of the calendar year. Mm -hmm. yeah. And from this recovering academic mm -hmm. to this very successful academic, mm -hmm. I know that this is a time of year that you probably like to be ice skating with your kids, for example. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for coming over to Heritage yeah. and, and sitting right. down with me. Good to be here, Kevin. People who follow marriage policy, mm -hmm. who follow the sociology of marriage and family, not only are aware of you, but see you as the luminary of, of that study. And, and you're a humble guy, so I know you don't want me to say those things, but it's true. People who don't know you, however, don't recognize how important your work is for those of us who do policy work. And so why don't you just give us a summary of the work that you're doing at Virginia and at the National Marriage Project? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. So what I'm doing um, right now is wrapping up a book for HarperCollins on marriage. And, you know, I've been kind of beating the marriage drum for like almost 20 years now, um, you know, talking about all the ways in which marriage and stable families matter for kids, for adults and, and for communities. Um, and in some ways, that's kind of gotten a bit old. But I think what's interesting about the research I'm, that I'm doing today is it's I'm it's indicating that sort of the importance of marriage and family seem to be kind of actually growing. And so when you look at, for instance, the link between um, coming from an intact married family and graduating from college, for boomers kind of coming of age, if they had the benefit of a stably married you know, family, it about doubled their odds of graduating from college. But for millennials, kind of a younger generation, it increases by 140%. Um, we see similar trends when it comes to things like school suspensions. That is, it's sort of coming from a, a married family that's stable is more important for kids today. Um, and we see also when you look at kind of adults, not just kids, that for instance, the gap in unhappiness between folks who are single, who are less happy in America than folks who are married, has uh, about doubled from 2000 to 2021. So what I'm getting at here, Kevin, simply is this idea, again, sort of having the benefit of a spouse and a family seems to be more important in 2022 than it was even in you know 1990 or 1975. And that's kind of new and exciting to sort of look at that and think about why that's the case. I want to ask why. Well, I'll just observe that the great irony, if not tragedy, that right. at the very same time right. that yes. marriage has become 
more least common in American yes, history that right, it's become more right, important. Right. What do you make of that? Right. So yeah, this is a great point. So it's kind of what I call the, the paradox of marriage today. Again, that it's more valuable, but it's also in retreat. And I think there are four big factors, I think, driving this story that both explain why marriage is more valuable, but also explain why it's in retreat. So one is that our economy is more unequal. And I think particularly for folks in the sort of working class and poor demographics, what we're seeing is that especially kind of the men in those, you know, um, sectors of our society are much less likely to be working full time. And that has a big impact on their financial well-being and on their marriageability. So that economic story is part of what's happening. We're also seeing obviously a, a huge shift in technology um, in recent years where folks are spending a lot more time on screens of one sort or another. And that I think makes them sort of less likely to socialize, to date, to marry, to have children, you know, and also at the same time makes it more beneficial to have a spouse and kids to kind of, you know, if you're a halfway decent spouse, a halfway decent dad, you can't be on a screen all the time. And so we actually obviously benefit from being connected to real people in our lives. And that's what having a spouse and kids helps us to do. Um, the third piece, of course, is that we're sort of seeing our country become um, much more atomistic. And what I mean by that is folks are just kind of on their own. They're going to church less often. They're volunteering in their communities less often. They're engaged in other forms of civic life less often. And so that, again, makes having a family that much more valuable as a source of solidarity. It's also the case, too, that kids tend to bring you out you know, into school, sports, you know, Sunday school. Uh, for instance, and get you out of your house, get you out of your apartment, and that, that's good. So, But again, kind of the atomization both makes family more valuable, but it also is explaining why we're less likely to get married in, in the first place. And the fourth piece is that our society is, is um, characterized by more normlessness, by fewer kind of common norms governing how we relate to one another and how we kind of orient our lives. And so again, having the benefit of, you know, doing dishes, taking kids to school in the morning, going to church on Sunday, kind of gives people a rhythm and routine for their life. That's actually, I mean, it can be, you know, it can be difficult and challenging and hassle at one level, but, you know, for most of us, we actually benefit from those kind of rhythms and routines. Um, and of course, the unfortunate reality is that in the broader society, those norms and those routines are less and less accessible to folks who are not married and, and don't have children. Um, and that normlessness, I think, also explains to why people are less likely to find their way into a dating and into a married relationship. So again, shifts in the economy, shifts in technology, shifts in community life, and shifts in our common norms in this country. Altogether, I think, both explain why marriage and family are in retreat on the one hand, and yet at the same time, much more valuable to contemporary Americans as well. And I want to key in on a really important point you made. You, I know you have more to say about this because I, I read and follow your research so closely and have for many years. And that is about happiness, like real happiness that you, you wake up and you're, you're, you're joyful. You're sure. hopeful about the future rather than the happiness that I might get when my Texas Longhorns win a football game, sure. which unfortunately is not often enough. But <laughs> yeah. the, the point is this, right. that, and it's, it's an academic one. And so some, mm -hmm. some people who don't like to, who, they might be conservatively minded, but don't spend a lot of time reading academic research, don't necessarily speak this way, which speaks well of them. But at the same time, we've seen a deterioration in marriage. Yeah. There has been a deterioration in what we call 
associational life or institutional right. life. Right. And and that's a very good thing. It, it's also one of the things that transcends, for example, partisanship. Clearly, there's a correlation. And 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 mm-hmm. what, whether from your research or research of others, do you think that correlation is? So yeah, it's a great question. Um, I was just reading a, a, a book by David Myers at Hope College, who's sort of an expert on happiness. And he was just kind of noting you know, that when you kind of look at the sort of predictors of happiness in psychological research, what you find is that it's, um, it's, it's, I mean, work is important, you know, income is important, um, in education is important, um, in predicting happiness, but, um, you know, we are social animals, as Aristotle said, and so our friendships and our family relationships are, are, are that much more important for happiness. Um, and so when you look at, what's called the General Social Survey. It's a big national survey funded by the feds, run by Chicago. What they see in this huge survey that's run since 1972 is that the number one predictor of happiness for adults is the quality of their marriage. Um, and if and if you're comparing folks who are, you know, who are married and not married, you know, marriage tops just by itself, you know, things like education, employment, and income. And what's I think striking in some ways tragic about that fact or those facts is that when Pew is surveying kind of Americans about what they think is most important today, we've seen a tremendous increase in the share of Americans who would ascribe that kind of ultimate importance to their work, their job, their career. Um, And so you see often like things like, you know, money and work being viewed by ordinary people as more consequential um, for their fulfillment, for their happiness than family. And yet the data tell us that it's really, you know, it's, it's your family, it's, it's your marriage, it's the quality of your, um, your marital relationship that really trumps all that. How do social scientists measure that quality of marriage? Well, in this particular survey, it's just, it's a simple indicator um, in this, this survey of the GSS of how happy are you in your marriage. But there, I mean, there are obviously- So some scale and- Yeah, and, and but there are you know other approaches that would stress things like commitment and how you communicate and, you know. Sure. But it, it kind of doesn't really matter how you measure marital quality. If you have a good measure, you'll find it's a, it's a very important predictor of your life satisfaction, basically. So part of this is, how we go about life as individuals in community mm-hmm. outside of the political arena. Right. But another part of this, which you also write about, and I'm very grateful for this, is the effect that policy has sure. on marriage formation. That's that's alone a big onion with a lot of layers to it. But, sure. but tell us what we need to know about the influence of policy over marriage. And then also, you know, the follow-up question, because we have this conversation on Twitter sometimes of all places, what the American political right needs to do to adapt to the realities of policy and marriage. Yeah. Well, I think we have to think about, you know, if marriage is so valuable, you know, a family is so valuable, why is it that these core institutions have been really withering in recent, really recent decades, to be honest, obviously. And I think there's a lot that's happened in the culture, obviously, that's part and parcel of, you know, of the why. Why is marriage in retreat in this country? Um, but I think policy has also played a role. And, and ironically, I think, you know, we have to acknowledge here that, um, you know, Ronald Reagan actually said this is one of his biggest regrets that, you know, as as governor in California, he signed no fault divorce legislation, which sort of helped to begin the, the legal um, erosion of marriage in America. And, you know, both 
that particular move and then moves also in terms of kind of shifting our approach to welfare in ways that basically would penalize marriage for many working class and poor families and, and still today does that. We've seen kind of basically our law and public policy often unwittingly kind of undercut the integrity of the marriage contract and also kind of economically disincentivize marriage. Um, and so one reason why we're seeing, I think, marriage um, kind of in, in duress, particularly first in poor communities in the 60s and 70s and, and since the 80s in working class communities, is that the government is basically, you know, um, sending the message that if you don't get married, you're going to get more money from us. Um, and oh, by the way, if you do get married and one person wants to get out for any reason whatsoever, they can do so um, and really not sort of bear any you know consequence you know um, from a contractual perspective. So those two dynamics are certainly one reason why I think marriage has uh, fallen on hard times, particularly among working class and poor Americans. And in the late 1990s, um, the folks over there on Capitol Hill addressed what are called marriage penalties, where again, you know, folks who are married are going to be paying more taxes, are going to be getting fewer benefits from the government, um, but they address them in the income tax uh, sort of arena of public policy, which is ironic because the folks who pay income taxes are generally the upper middle class and the upper class, where marriage is still today, you know, strongest. They did not address all the marriage penalties in our means-tested programs, like Medicaid, for instance, or like the Earned Income Tax Credit, for instance, now. Um, and so I think the challenge to kind of move forward is to recognize that it's sort of at the very least, the federal government should not be penalizing marriage. We can think about ways, and folks here at Heritage have been doing that thinking um, in, in important ways. But how can we kind of advance um, an agenda that stops penalizing marriage, particularly now for working class families? Um, but beyond that, we need to think, too, about ways to sort of have the government send a better message culturally. Um, because as we've all seen in the last few years in this country, it's also the case, too, that many of our public institutions, including public schools, are sending messages to our kids that either explicitly or implicitly, you know, um, undercut marriage, undercut strong families, undercut the kinds of norms that would um, govern and guide our kids in a constructive direction. So. Um, that's also, I think, part of the challenge is thinking about ways that we can kind of reorient our approach to education um, so that we're not um, unwittingly um, giving our kids, you know, bad ideas, wrong ideas about sex, relationships, marriage and family life, which we often tend to do in our public schools today. So, I mean, we could say more, but, you know, there's just some of the kind of ways in which I think our um, our public institutions have ended up either penalizing or, or eroding or. Um, even kind of uh, devaluing, you know, marriage and family life. This is a massive problem. Yes, I mean yep. it's it's the most massive of massive problems. As as we sit here today, the the conversation on Capitol Hill is about an omnibus bill, part of a budget. If we were in the in the custom of passing budgets formally in Congress anymore, and and ostensibly that's about dollars and cents, but. You and I both know, and I'm sure the audience knows, it's really about programs and policy priorities. That's a massive problem. But in contrast to the marriage problem, it, it pales in comparison. And by that, I mean it will take, and I, this sounds pessimistic. I, I mean it, I intend it to be realistic to get to the question, which will be about proposed solutions. That's the most massive problem a society can face. And, and so I'm sure that people who are watching or listening mm -hmm 
or who followed your work will sometimes wonder, well, if it will take a few decades to start to reverse course, there have to be some steps we do first. And, and you've begun to delineate some of those, but what would you encourage audience members to do you know, behind, beyond their own individual behavior, whether it's involved in policy or community work or something? I, I wanna give some sense of optimism. Yeah, so I think part of the autism here is just to recognize that, you know, for folks who are actually making good choices out there in terms of, you know, encouraging their kids to do the right thing, um, folks who are getting married, staying married, you know, who are sacrificing for their spouse and for their children. Um, I mean, what we see in the research is that people who are living what I call kind of a family first way of life, um, you know, where they're taking their kids to soccer practice, um, you know, keeping um, abreast of their kids' performance in school, um, trying to form their kids, you know, um, to be good citizens. If they're people of faith, to be good Christians, good Jews, good Muslims, whatever it might be, those folks are, are, are flourishing in 2022. Um, and they're just doing a lot better than other Americans who are not kind of you know, living a family first uh, way of life. So the good news is there is a path out there that exists today that you can kind of pursue. And then if you, if you walk down that path, not that every day is going to be easy because it's not. We all know that as husbands and fathers, right? But they just talk to our wives. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. But, you know, but in general, um, what the data tell us is that people who are kind of living that family first lifestyle in America today are much more likely to be flourishing. So I, and it's particularly the case too, my research indicates that more educated, more affluent and conservative Americans um, who are living that lifestyle are the ones most likely to say that they're happy. So that's kind of good news for the heritage you know, audience, right? But of course the challenge in America today is that not everyone is educated, affluent and conservative. Um, and so you know, we need to think about ways to kind of basically share the good news about marriage and family life with a much broader audience and help Americans who are struggling in their relationships and in their families to um, to make better choices. So that means, I think, practically thinking about policy reform in terms of schools. How can we get something like the success sequence into public schools, kind of teaching kids that if you um, get at least a high school degree, you work full time and marry before having kids, your odds of being poor are just 3%. And more importantly, your odds of kind of Establishing a strong and stable family are much higher. We need to think about, you know, policies that will end the marriage penalty, you know, over there on Capitol Hill. Um, we need to think about, and this is where the sort of I think the right needs to begin to rethink um, its approach to um, to government to some extent. Think about policies that would be kind of helpful to working class and middle class families who are kind of struggling to, you know, bear the costs of raising kids in this in this day and age, um, making it um, easier for them to afford those costs, and also to kind of steer clear, for instance, of having to, you know, place their kids in, you know, daycare if they don't want to do that. Um, and right now, I think there are too few Republicans who kind of recognize that a lot of working and middle-class families are really struggling to afford um, you know, the costs of, of raising, especially younger kids, and that we could do a better job of kind of giving them um, some additional support uh, financially. And also kind of signaling to the broader culture that we as a country value uh, marriage, we as a country value uh, parenthood, and we're gonna kind of walk alongside you as uh, you make sacrifices for um, the next generation and for the future of our country. So um, 
I think also too, when it comes to uh, local churches and other religious institutions, kind of recognizing the importance of um, either starting or supporting marriage and family ministries. I mean, there are thousands of churches across this country that do not have any kind of marriage or family ministry. Um, and, you know, that's got to change if we want to kind of really give people um, the support they need to, to flourish. My own work, for instance, indicates that folks who are religious are more likely to be happy in their marriages, and they're about 35% less likely to get divorced. But it also shows me that about one in five folks who are regular churchgoers are not happy in their marriages. And so on any given Sunday, if you're in church, if you kind of were to look around the congregation, about one in five of your fellow you know, churchgoers are folks who are going to be struggling in their marriage. Um, and I think their kind of their struggles need to be kind of acknowledged and um, addressed and folks need to kind of come alongside them and help them, um, you know, as they deal with whatever issue is, um, you know, um, is, um, is driving their marital quality down at that particular moment in time. So there's some ideas about what things folks could do to kind of strengthen marriage, either in their local communities or in public policy. It's a really good list. Thank you for that. And, and I really like your idea of just in terms of, of practical at the local level, individuals can do this, parents can do this. We can, in other words, tap into this, this angst that so many apolitical parents have over the quality of education in their local schools. They can go and, and, and clamor for, I would argue, to replace most of what's being taught right. there, but at yeah. least in yes. addition to that, to be, to be talking about the success sequence, which is not political. Mm -hmm. It's not explicitly religious, which right. causes some people, would cause some people some sensitivity. It's a really good idea. But another thing that I, I've keyed in on in your response, although everything you say is really good and thoughtful, is, is this debate inside American conservatism. And, and I'm, I'm pleased that that debate has become more friendly over the last mm -hmm. couple of years. And I'll just use myself as an example to show that that I'm often wrong. I'm a latecomer uh, to the realization that conservatives, of whom I have, have been one my entire life, have to get over this hostility we have, or at least this concern we have, to the federal government in particular playing a role in, in these debates. We have to get over that. I mean, as an example, here at Heritage, our domestic policy staff, uh, you met some of the guys uh, as you were walking in working on this, know they have a charge for me to figure out what a conservative family policy looks like. Right. Not saying that it's going to look like what other countries have done in, say, in Hungary or in Poland, but we do have to come up with a policy, not just we at Heritage, but we as a people. You've been really, really thoughtful and vocal about this. And and I'm not sure where we're going to land yet, but I, and there's some risk in the president of Heritage is sort of laying bare that this is kind of a, a challenging process for us internally, but it's challenging in the great spirit of friendship that we know mm -hmm based on your research and that of others, we have to figure this out because it isn't just that politics or that politics is downstream from culture. Politics and policy can really affect the culture, and we have to recognize that. Yeah, no, I think, you know, what we saw obviously in the 60s and the 70s was that when the government, in this case the federal government, makes some real mistakes, um, you know, when it comes to, say, welfare policy, that has a huge impact on, in this case, family culture, family life across the U.S. And so we, we've sort of already messed it up, basically. And so the question in part, I think now before us, is sort of can we steer this, you know, this ship in and in a, it's going to take some time to steer the ship in a new direction. But I think we should. And recognizing that this is sort of, um, I mean, that 
it's not just enough to talk about freedom and liberty. We need to think about the, the goods that are so fundamental for our country and that if people are not living virtuous lives, the founders obviously, you know, told us, um, then this whole um, experiment, you know, in order liberty, you know, basically comes apart, right? And so we are in a moment where, you know, the marriage rate and the fertility rate are basically at record lows and where a lot of people are suffering because they're not part of strong and stable families. And so I think the question is not that the federal government, you know, can do it all on its own, but what role can the government play constructively to sort of help, you know, advance and reinforce um, the the sort of family foundations of our republic um, at this sort of moment in time? And that's and it, what you're you're trying to figure that's out. That's what we're look. Yeah. I'm also confident we'll figure it out because we have have a lot of smart people, and they're led here by Roger Severino, who's of of identical mind to the two of us. So we'll we'll figure it out and and, and do that soon. And I'm I'm really glad that really thoughtful members of Congress, uh, Senator Rubio, Senator Hawley, no doubt, Senator-elect Vance, some of the new members of the House will be coming in asking for that, demanding for it. But it, it also makes me wonder that it, it can't, that debate can't just be about tax credits. This is, and I don't know the answer, by the way, perhaps, sure. perhaps you sure. have a clear sense. I'm yeah. not saying that they aren't part of the solution, yeah. but th there is a, there is a desire among conservatives who are elected officials in Congress mm -hmm. to take the path of least resistance, because after all, they're politicians and they're risk averse. But I think what our early conclusions are, we have to go beyond that, or we have to at least modify significantly what tax credits have looked like. So yeah, I think if you think about, you know, I talked about four different factors that are driving family life, marriage down in, in America, and those were economic and technological and they were communal and they were you know cultural in terms of where the government i think could do a better job is really on um sort of those uh those first two fronts so beyond just thinking about um so and on the child tax credit for instance i think we should go forward with you know an, a more aggressive child tax credit um but i think where the left is has been wrong on this front. And, and to be frank, I was wrong on this front too. Um, I kind of wanted to make this a more universal credit just to kind of give to parents across the board without any kind of conditions. But in watching sort of how money, you know, flowed out in 2020 and 2021, and then sort of seeing how it's flowed out in, in my own community in Charlottesville and seeing some of the new research on this question kind of came to the realization, which I think probably would not be any news for you or for some of your team here, that if you're kind of giving money out to folks who are not working, you know, or where there's no worker in the family, um, you know, there's no marriage anywhere in sight, that can have its own problems. And so what I'm now sort of thinking about is sort of can we structure the child tax credit so that it goes to families where there is work and income and, and hopefully in most cases two parents in the picture. Um, and again, kind of do it in such a way as to sort of reinforce the financial foundations of working and middle-class families, especially who I think are in, in, in greatest need on this front, but not unwittingly kind of return to the mistakes of the 60s and 70s in terms of just kind of giving cash out to people where there is no worker um, and they're just kind of depending upon the government to kind of sustain themselves financially. Because that's not good for those adults, which is often lost. Left doesn't seem to realize that like being in a house where there's no worker that's not great for the adults, and it's certainly not good for the kids either. To sort of to see that there is no worker within their own household and their own family. Um, those families need help, and that's what you know TANF is designed to do. 
But just sort of giving them a check every month is not going to kind of address the profound challenges that often face people, um, you know, families where it's a single parent who is, you know, has no connection to the workforce. So that's part of the story. But in terms of going beyond just the child tax credit conversations, thinking about technology, and obviously um, Congress has failed, has failed to do anything meaningful about teens in tech. Um, we're seeing, you know, we just did, the Institute for Family Studies just did a big study looking at the, the emotional fallout of high-tech use for our teens and on things like depression and loneliness just kind of off the charts, particularly for kids being raised in non-tech families with lots of tech, you know, time on their hands. So Congress could do more to, I think, um, you know, address sort of the outsized role that big tech has in our kids' lives. Um, for instance, kind of giving parents the authority to say yes or no to um, apps like Instagram and and TikTok. I mean, we have the technology to do that, but Congress has failed to pass legislation that would give parents. So I'm not saying the, the government's going to kind of come in here like ch China and monitor directly teenage use, but we could at least give parents the power to have a greater influence in their kids' lives, um, and Congress should do that. So that's the technology front, for instance. Um, I think on the economic front, we are seeing, you know, more and more men um, in our country who are not employed full time. And that's a disaster for them, you know, for their romantic partners, their wives, their families, and their children. Um, and so I think, you know, the government could do more on sort of the, on the employment front by reforming um, SSDI disability payments, for instance, by thinking creatively about um, workforce programs, and um, by also thinking too about the kinds of you know, industries that are affected by the policies passed on Capitol Hill. So right now, we, I think we tend to favor the financial sector, we tend to favor the healthcare sector, and we tend to discount you know, manufacturing and um, you know, oil, the oil industry, for instance. And of course, those are sectors that are much more likely to be male-friendly. So there are lots of different kinds of steps, you know, that would bear on the economy, on the technological front, but also on kind of things like child tax credits, not to mention addressing these marriage penalties that I mentioned before, where Congress could take steps to um, address some of these challenges that bear on the health of particularly working and middle-class families in this country. As, as I sit here listening to your excellent summary there, Brad, it strikes me that if we, we can figure out what family policy looks like and it be... 80, 90% effective, that we will have as a movement, as a people, let's hope that this is bipartisan eventually, have achieved the greatest policy success as conservatives that I can think of. In fact, I, I've, I've taken the last several weeks inside Heritage to say, this is like putting a, a man on the moon in the 1960s, because this affects everything. Sure. One of the rotten fruits of all of these problems and of having a, a policy that's at, at best outdated, but at worst um, actually destroying families, is the, the hyper-partisanship we have. And you've done some excellent research. You've, you've uh, written about this recently. The breakdown or the, the split in sex between men and women, uh, also the importance of college education when it comes to that. What are the origins of that? And, and do you think if we start getting some of these other policies right or closer to right, that that will have an effect on that? Because one of my worries is the hyper-partisanship in this country. Yeah, I think... Um, we're just facing tremendously challenging times on the partisanship front and the cultural front. I mean, I think, you know, the reality is, is that our, 
you know, the academy um, where I where I sit, and uh, the media, and and much of the sort of the folks who are creating pop culture, you know, lean heavily to the left. Um, and unfortunately, that means that they've they've tended in recent years, particularly since you know what Matthew Glaze has called the Great Awakening, um, they've they tended to kind of take what I call a more individualistic approach to life, where you want to kind of maximize your personal freedom, keep your options open, not kind of be too invested in marriage or in, in family life. Um, there was a piece in Bloomberg in September, basically, that said, I mean, falsely said that women who, um, you know, got married and had kids were more likely to be poor, or women who didn't have, who didn't get married and didn't have kids were going to be richer. Um, and the and the article in Bloomberg was kind of like suffused with all these examples of single childless women who were flourishing, not just financially, but also emotionally, right? And what was striking about that piece was not only was it false, I mean, empirically, I can show just the opposite of what the thesis of this Bloomberg journalist was articulating, but she tweeted out that very day that she published her piece, a little tweet saying, this is for all my like, you know, friends who are like childless. Like she was clearly signaling that she had an agenda, a sort of anti-nuptial, anti-natalist agenda. So my point is simply is that the challenge, I think, is that many of the folks who kind of man the cultural heights in our culture, in the academy and in, in the media and elsewhere, just are not all that friendly to marriage and family life and the sacrifices that those things require of us. We're also seeing, I think, among our cultural elites, a profound, what I call anti-traditionalism. Like, a, you know, they're just skeptical about anything that's sort of older, not realizing that many of our traditions, of course, not all, but many of them have kind of like emerged over time to help us. So there's like a lot of skepticism about, you know, even like now fidelity, you know, or just the, or two people in, in, in marriage. Um, and yet there's kind of, or even for instance, just a more kind of discreet example is there's a lot of skepticism about the, the merits of merging your bank accounts. I've and, been reading a lot about this recently. And, and, you know, they're encouraging couples today to keep separate accounts in, in that spirit of individualism that I was talking about, right? Like you, you've got your money, you know, she's got her money. No recognition that marriage is most likely to be flourishing when there's a we before me mentality. And that applies to money as well. In fact, there was a really great study done by Northwestern psychologists where they randomly assigned young newly married couples to joint checking accounts and separate accounts and then just do whatever you want. And of course, the folks who were randomly assigned to have joint checking accounts where they're pooling their money, sharing their money, talking about their money, they were the ones who were much more likely in the first two years of married life, as they tracked them over time, to be flourishing, right? And so, again, the point I'm making is I think the hard thing about our, our moment is that, you know, many of our friends on the left um, in, you know, many sectors, including here in Capitol, just don't appreciate the value of what I call familism um, and these core institutions. And so, um, it's going to be really challenging for us to address the kinds of divides that you've mentioned. Now, I think the left has assumed as well that as we become a country where there are fewer and fewer married folks, that's going to push the U.S. in the direction of the Democratic Party. And just like they thought that having more like Hispanics and immigrants would push us sort of inexorably towards a Democratic agenda and a Democratic future, I'm actually now thinking that that's not necessarily the case. And I think what they haven't seen is that, yes, women who are not married, especially women who are college educated who are not married, 
are migrating to the Democratic Party in very substantial numbers, obviously, in recent decades. Um, and I think they're going to continue to migrate. But there are two sexes, right? And what we're seeing, I think, among men who are not married is a, a beginning of a kind of a, a drift towards looking more seriously at conservatives in the Republican Party. And we actually just saw in South Korea, as you probably know, they elected a conservative <clears throat> Um, head of government in South Korea, who was elected um, in part because he generated a lot of um, support among young, unmarried Korean men who, for a variety of reasons, are not happy with the dispensation in South Korea. So my point simply is that I think what's happening in this country is that we could see a kind of um, profound polarization along um, sort of gender and education and uh, family lines where married folks drift more towards the conservative end of things, unmarried folks drift more towards the democratic and liberal end of things, but there's a substantial share of unmarried men who may be kind of beginning to sort of you know, move to the right because they're not happy with um, a world where you know, it's harder for them to find a spouse and find their position in this, in this, uh, in this new um, culture. And it seems that when we... we transpose that very informed persuasive speculation you mentioned into politics that the next leaders, the next generation of leaders of conservatism have to speak to that in terms of policy, in terms of messaging, and, and obviously the next opportunity for that to happen in a significant way is the 2024 presidential race, which we will not talk about in, in today's episode, but perhaps the next time we have you back, and I'd love to have you back many times over the years, sure. we can cover the importance of political messaging when it, when it comes to this. So two final questions, Brad. Uh, one is to make sure that audience members know where to track your work, and another plug for your upcoming book. Yeah, so um, I'm also involved with the American Enterprise Institute and also with the Institute for Family Studies. And a lot of work that I do and colleagues do on these issues is at familystudies.org. You can just Google that. Um, I'm on Twitter at Brad Wilcox, uh, IFS. And um, my book is coming out with HarperCollins uh, this summer. It's called Get Married. And um, there's already a little website up at HarperCollins for the book. So, so that's, summer of 23. Yeah, so this upcoming summer, the book will be out. Yep. Excellent. Yep. Last question, a little bit of a spin on the last question, which usually is why you're you're hopeful about the future of America. I, I'd ask you, you know, although you can answer that, to direct your response to like-minded younger people, mm -hmm. guys and gals younger than you and me, sure. not yet married. They mm -hmm. they understand what you're saying. They're they're with you. Mm -hmm. And yet they're skeptical that, in fact, it's going to work for them for a host of reasons. What would your response to them be? Yeah, that's a great um, that's a great question. I mean, I think the challenge for younger adults is that there are so few institutions that are kind of um, helping them get to know one another in constructive ways and kind of creating a pathway for them to date and marry. Um and so, you know, I actually have seen at UVA, surprisingly enough, a, a group of students who are kind of organizing um, dances, lectures, other events, all designed to kind of promote, um, you know, dating with an eye towards marriage. Um, they're, they're definitely kind of an exceptional group of young adults, but I've never seen anything like this before at UVA. I've been teaching it, you know, 20 years um, at the University of Virginia. 
And for the first time in the last couple of years, there's you know a group of students who are really kind of trying to help one another um, kind of meet and basically marry, you know, at some point down the road. Um, so I think, you know, we have a kind of a collective action problem here for young adults. And so I think what you, sh you know, what I would encourage people to do is to, um, if they're religious, you know, to, to sort of do this in their, in their uh, religious congregations and religious institutions. And if they're not, um, you know, to, to kind of band together, um, like in, you know, in college or in graduate school or some other local group and try to kind of, um, you know, foster these sort of, you know, dating associations. Um, and what's different about what's happening at UVA is just that they're not just sort of encouraging folks to date, but they're, they're very kind of intentional about, you know, these are the kinds of things you should be doing, um, thinking about as you are, are, are dating. Um, and, you know, we want to kind of do this with an eye towards marriage, not just sort of like just having a good time or, or obviously even worse, kind of um, treating the other person as just an object of one sort or another. So that's sort of a, a, a you know, um, a, a point of light on the, on the horizon for, for me. Dr. Brad Wilcox, thanks for everything you're doing. Thanks for thanks taking for time. And most of all today, thanks for this conversation. Thank you, Kevin. It's good to be here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Kevin Roberts Show. Obviously, there's a lifetime of work there for our friend Brad Wilcox, which means that we can participate by living a conservative life. So until next time, let us do that and take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.